and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 68 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm a mom woman. I'm Clarice Lockery. And I'm Hannah Flint. This week, watch out for the grabber! Ethan Hawke is back on sinister form in the Black Fern, and Hannah chats with writer director Scott Derrickson all about it. Elvis has entered the building, thank you very much, in Baz Luhrmann's extravagant biopic. And in our hot take, we will do what we must and break down the Obi-Wan Kenobi finale. Very excited to talk about that. Uh, but before that, let's check in with the crew. Uh, Clarice, how goes your COVID recovery? Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I literally, because I haven't spoken, like, I haven't spoken to anybody in over a week. And all I do is I wake up and I think about Stranger Things. <laughs> I go to sleep and I think about Stranger Things. And I'm really stressed because it's like the last two episodes are coming out. And they keep being like, we're going to kill somebody. And I I cried twice the other day because I was like, what if they kill Robin? <laughs> How am I going to live with myself? So, I, um... I haven't watched that trailer. I hope Robin doesn't die. I think Max is going to die because he don't write... You know, you don't make a yeah. big thing out of, you know, these are letters that you should only open in case of my death. And then you don't open those letters at some point in the show. She is going to die, whether it's in this, these episodes or in the final season. I'm prepared for that. Robin would be, no, I'm not, I'm not prepared for that. That, that, that might break me. So I'm hoping that it doesn't go that way. Yeah. Uh, Hannah, Hannah, do you watch Stranger Things? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just not as invested as you guys. (laughs) Although I did have a weird dream. You just remind me, I had a weird dream. And it had the the kid he plays, Will. Is it, what's his name? Noah. I have no idea what it was about, but he had several different hairdos and one of them was like a glam rock, like long, Brian May queen hairdo. (laughs) So I don't know if like, this is a premonition of what to expect in Stranger Things Volume 2. But... Did I tell you guys I've officially completed Lego Star Wars? You did. You told, told us that last week. Okay, good. Right, well, um, I'm still working. I feel like I'm not going to be... <laughs> I feel like I'm not going to be done with Star Wars until the end of the year because there are so many side missions. Like, it's ridiculous. And I feel like I feel like maybe I'm like in Mean Girls, like Katie, where she's looking in the mirror, she's like, I can feel I'm getting boring by what, bored by what I say, but I can't just stop talking. Like, I feel like that about Lego Star Wars. It's like, Hannah, shut the fuck up about Lego Star Wars. But I was on this podcast the other day um, called White People Won't Save You to talk about, like, white saviour narratives um, Mm -hmm. in podcasts. And they asked me about Lego Star Wars. So, obviously, I was like, I'm making an impact, guys. So, (laughs) they asked me what my... um, Oh, I won't reveal what happens. I'll I'll tell you what. uh, But they asked me Mm -hmm. what would be my ideal Lego, Lego, like, game. (laughs) Uh, and that was an interesting chat. So check Did that out. Did they ask you what would be your ideal June cast? That's just, just like, that's just too soon. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, to be fair, I did do my ideal June cast if it was only cast, but with people from Middle East and North African but, um, heritage. And it was sick. I'll find it and I'll share it on the Fate to Black <laughs> Twitter account because... You know what's really annoying? I'm sorry, because obviously we've had the new announcements come through recently and everyone's whitening it. What's really annoying is the amount of people who reply to me as if I haven't read Dune, as if I haven't wrote a million things about Dune. And it's like, um, do you not think, like, 
uh, why would you want them to play genocidal genocidal aristocrats? It's like, oh my god, everyone's genocidal in this fucking book. It's like this weird thing that people constantly find an excuse to try and say you can't have representation. Like, so say, well, what if it's the point of Denise's vision that white people are in power? It's like, ooh, groundbreaking. What white fascists? <laughs> white oppressors? Oppress? Oppress? Um, white oppressors? It's like people forget that there's been like so many civilizations: Persian Empire, Ottoman Empire, the Islamic <laughs> colonization of the Maghreb. Like there are like centuries of examples of the way non-white powers have colonized and defined history and people are so obsessed with this like one dynamic that they refuse to see anything else so anyway there you go there's my <laughs> you you shouldn't have mentioned dune Amon. <laughs> i i regretted it the moment i said <laughs> you know what don't regret because i do think it's important to remind people that like there are li- that we are so everything we learn about history is so white centric that we fail to look at like the way in which other civilizations have created the world that we are today when it comes to like economics, art, philosophy. Everyone thinks, oh, it's the Romans and the Greeks. No, it's not. It's like Carthaginians, Persian Empire, Ottomans, like all this stuff, Islamic civilization. And I'm so kind of bored of having to have this conversation with people who just haven't done the reading. (laughs) It's like, it's not my job to kind of like educate you, all these people who reply to me on these things. And that's what's frustrating. And I can see Clarissa's nodding along with me. So I feel very much like Mm -hmm. reinforced by that. (laughs) I'm yeah. also nodding along with you. Can you not see me nodding? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm nodding along as a scholar of ancient history because it's very mm-hmm. true. Exactly. It's just the Greeks and Romans. Mm. It's bullshit. Speaking of culture on screen that is, that is actually getting it right, Miss Marvel is three episodes in. It's the next we haven't episodes. watched it. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm going to stop gonna, you in your track there. <laughs> One, I can't believe you haven't watched it yet. What are you no, guys doing? I did. I, I had, I started watching it, but I was so tired the other day. I watched Obi-Wan mm. Kenobi and then I started watching Miss Marvel and then I woke up and I was like, oh, it's over. And then I mm. realised I need to come back to watch it when I'm less tired. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I, I won't get into specifics because okay. you guys haven't done the work, but it's fine. Um, but I have I, had a disease. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, Clarice, as excuses go, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. But... <laughs> I was going to say number two, like, I just, I love, if, if the next three episodes are as good as the first three episodes, we might be talking about the best uh, Disney Plus MC show so far. It's yeah. been that good. Um, and it's really getting into the joy and the positivity of the Muslim Pakistani culture. And I love that it's doing that while also at the same time having the Western way in which the Muslim Pakistani culture has been portrayed in the past be represented by damage control um, and telling those stories at the same time. I think I find that very, very interesting. Um, but I suppose, to... the, I suppose the thing is we need to kind of like stop seeing it as Western and this. Like the whole yeah, point true. of this show is to show that this is America. <laughs> this is mm-hmm. an all-American inclusive school, what it means. And so like, like America fundamentally is a place that's built on immigrants and bringing cultures together as much as white people try and deny it. That's literally the foundation. Like, religious freedom is the founding principle of what America... Well, what white America... What the what the pilgrims thought of America. Obviously, America existed well before people from Europe came over. So I, what I like about it is just how, like, normalised 
this American culture is normalized in this kind of like um, melting pot, I suppose, but one that doesn't, a melting pot which doesn't um, strip away the kind of like cultural resonance that, like you said, Pakistan, um, Islamic, but also like South Asian, I think, because Bisha K. Ali, um, she's not Pakistani, she's Indian. And I think the kind of whole storyline with the partition, mm. I think this, it's amazing to me, even in the UK, because I feel like when we think about culture in the UK, like South Asian culture is so should get far more attention than it does. Mm. Mm. Um, just within the British South Asian culture. And because I feel like there is a bit of a, like a hierarchy in how we see this. Obviously, like black culture, black British culture is amazing, but like there seems to be like we're, we're not even getting to the point with British South Asian culture. Like when I think about the next James Bond, I'm like, <laughs> maybe the next uh, James Bond, like South Asian. Let's talk about imperialism and the way that like whole of India and Pakistan and what caused partition in the first place. So to have this conversation about something that a lot of people don't know about, especially after something like Mogul Mowgli which had a very, very clear narrative regarding partition as a theme, to have that again in this mainstream, um, you know, Marvel series, is like such, <laughs> it's so amazing. And that's, what mm-hmm. ma- and that's what matters when you have that cultural specificity, but having people behind the scenes who can write it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yep. 100%, 100%. But enough Miss Marvel chat, it's time for some movie chat. And before we get into the big reviews that we're talking about today, uh, Hannah, you have some thoughts on Moon 66 Questions. Yeah, this is the feature debut of Jacqueline Letsu, and it's about a, kind of, um, a daughter who's been away for a while. It's kind of a, it's a Greek film uh, who comes home to help her father who's had a stroke and is now needs full-time care. And it's, it's just... It's interesting. It's got. It's kind of uses a mix of kind of like home home videos taken from the point of view of the father when they were younger, and then obviously very centered on this um, this his daughter Artemis. And yeah, I think as someone who loves a father father daughter film, this is quite emotional, quite beautiful. It's quite abstract in a way in certain situations, surreal moments where. You know, situations where she's kind of talking to herself and reliving moments from her youth between her and father because they had a very tempestuous relationship. Um, but yeah, I think it's actually a really, a really touching, emotional and quite, I don't know, like understated film that might be a bit dry in some places, but actually hits an emotional punch by the end of the film. So uh, that's out this week uh, if you are interested in some greek sensibility of filmmaking that's got a little bit of the yorga slamphamos touch but actually i think it's got quite a um a unique voice love it love it Ooh. i shall add it to the list and now it's time for our first film the black phone tell me your name taylor I was really starting to like you, Finny. I almost let you go. Don't hang up. Who are you? Don't leave me hanging on the telephone. Hanging on the telephone. That doesn't happen in a movie. I just wanted to say <laughs> add a horror element to it. So, The Black Phone. This is the uh, latest horror from Scott Derrickson. 
Obviously, we know him from Exorcism of Emily Rose, Sinister, Devil's Not, Deliver Us From Evil, Sinister 2, he didn't direct it, but he wrote it. And of course, there's Doctor Strange, uh, well, one, he's in the EP on Doctor Strange 2, they departed on Multiverse Madness over creative differences. Um, so he had, he full, went full pelt into this, uh, into this film uh, that he adapted from the short, um, short story by Joe Hill, um, also called The Black Phone. Um, this film follows Finney Shaw. He's a shy but clever 13-year-old boy who's been held in a soundproof basement by a sadistic mass killer. When a disconnected phone on the wall starts to ring, he soon discovers that he can hear the voices of the murderer's previous victims and they are dead set, dead set, on making mm-hmm. sure that what happened to them doesn't happen to Finney. So, as I said, directed by Scott Derrickson, co-written by... Um, Derrickson and his part, writing partner C. Robert Cargill. It stars Mason Thames, Madeline McGraw, Jeremy Davis, James Ranson, and Ethan Hawke as the grabber. Um, so I was so happy that I could speak to Scott about it. I feel like I've been trying to speak to Scott for a long time. We were like Twitter mutuals and now we managed to transfer that into an actual interview, which is great. Um, and we kind of talked about I suppose how much um, he put into it personally, into the story, adapting the short story into something and expanding upon that about Ethan Hawke, about the mass. Um, and and then we also just talk about like the horror genre in general at the end, which is a really interesting kind of like his take as someone who's, I would consider as a horror connoisseur. Um, it was really interesting to saw like the, like the landscape of horror at the moment, because everyone's talking about like elevated horror, blah, blah, blah. So it was good to get his two cents on that. So, Please enjoy this interview between myself and Mr. Scott Derrickson. Scott Derrickson, welcome to the Fade to Black podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Very good to be here, Hannah. It feels like this has been a long time coming. We've been chatting for so long and finally we have a movie to talk about. <laughs> I know. I think this is the first time we've actually spoken in person. It, yes. Yeah. It is. Now we've transferred it. No longer Twitter mutuals. Now we're like full on Zoom friends. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean... Like, let's talk, I'd love to know kind of the origin story of, of like how the Black Phone came about. Obviously, we all know there was another film, a kind of a small film that you're supposed to be working on, but then things changed up. So tell me a little bit about that, um, how that happened. Well, I had read Joe Hill's short story when it was first published, you know, 17, 18 years ago, something like that, and always thought it was a great idea for a movie. Um, I liked how it combined a serial killer story and a ghost story, and had never seen that done effectively before. And uh, and we can we can mention the, the, the name, the sequel to Doctor Strange. <laughs> when I was I, there was another writer who was hired to write the first draft on that script. And and as that script was being written, uh, it was taking a long time. So Cargill, my writing partner, and I decided just to write something on our own. And uh, and I had been in therapy talking about my childhood and dealing with trauma from my childhood and kind of the violence that I grew up with. And. And then the idea hit me to combine my own memories with growing up in North Denver in the late seventies with Joe Hill's story. And that's basically what the movie is. Yeah. And I, and um, I read the story yesterday. I downloaded it and read it especially for this interview. It's only a short one, so it's fine. Yeah. But, um, it's quick, read. <laughs> quick read. I love how, I suppose there's a real, it felt quite organic, the kind of way you've expanded. Cause there's little things, little characters, 
one-off lines here and there that kind of you built on the film so I suppose adapting something that's already in its like original form like tell me about that process of kind of uh, in a bit deeper about how you want to expand in certain roles obviously we've got a far bigger sister character in this version as well well yeah you know the short story is so good for what it is it, it only had one ghost uh one former victim I'm not giving anything away that's <laughs> trailer I think uh but uh, but it it needed more expansion, you know, for Finney's time while being abducted, and it also, you know, had no real home life, uh, you know, or school life for these kids that that were involved. So, the sister there was there was no female figure in in the short story that had any substance, and I really wanted, uh, I loved the idea of of this nine year old girl, the youngest person in the movie, being you know, the strongest one, the smartest one in some ways, you know, the protector of the older boy, you know, she's kind of the soul of the movie. So that was the biggest expansion. We added four kids to the one kid that was in Joe's story, gave them all their own backstories. And those were all kids that I knew. I mean, they're literally taken from specific kids that I knew growing up, you know, and then of course, the 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 bullying, the neighborhood, the, the 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 violence at home all that was again taken from my own experience so it, it, the the matching of my own uh memories which were very fresh and sort of recently unearthed because of my years in therapy uh it just filled it out very naturally actually it was a, we wrote it in like six weeks it was a pretty oh, quick wow. adaptation yeah so what you're saying everyone should get in therapy and find a story <laughs> Well, you know, you're not going to find out more about yourself any other any any other <laughs> way than uh, than uh, than going in and you know digging in the dirt like that. But you have a writing partner, so like, tell me how that collaboration works. Because obviously, you said this is a very personal story. You've got the original, but then also you have someone else. So how does that kind of how do you collaborate? Well, he, you know, Cargill is my closest friend, so he knew a lot about you know my, the specific specifics of my childhood and <clears throat> much of which is not in the in, in the in the movie. Uh, and when I told him the idea, he just immediately sparked to it. He, he, I think his specific response was "fuck yeah, I'm in," because <laughs> uh, I think he is quickly realized that worked. We had thought about trying to adapt Joe's story into a movie for years, and just didn't have any idea about how to expand it in a way that was interesting. Um, but my my relationship with him is, you know, one in the adaptation process where we we, we approach each project differently. You know. Um, it depends on who's sort of the creative driver from the from the get-go. Um, we just adapted his novel Day Zero, and he was really the driving force on on that adaptation. I did plenty of work on it, uh, but on on Black Phone, it was the other way around. And uh, but the great thing is Cargill writes at night, you know. So when we <laughs> you get into the writing process, uh, I write all day. I, we both write in long stints, so it's kind of like having a twenty-four hour writer. <laughs> No, that's how we can write things so fast. You're always on call yeah, exactly. <laughs> this partnership. But um, there's also, it feels like a loyalty there. Cause again, you were kind of, he waited around for you. And I suppose like having, knowing that, you know, you were able to get off Dr. Strange too. And then actually, you know, he waited there for you. Like, does that well, he feel- wasn't, he, was, he wasn't just waiting. Cargill's a very accomplished novelist, you know, and- Oh uh, yeah, he wasn't waiting by his phone. It's like, when's the- No, no, he was, he was busy, he was busy uh, writing uh, award-winning novels. And, and the, in fact, the way that we became friends, you know, I knew him as a critic and so we sort of knew each other personally. And I read his first three chapters of his first attempt at a novel. And with, without having any interest in working with him or thoughts about that, I just said, if you can finish this novel as good as these three chapters, 
I'll help you get it published because I had, you know, have connections to the publishing world. And that's exactly what happened. You know, so he finished his book. I said, it's brilliant. And I, I got him, I took it into a publishing house that I knew and, you know, he got a big book deal. And so he's always got plenty to do if I'm off directing, <laughs> but, I, but, but if I'm directing something that we've written, I love having him on set. He's always on set and having that extra backup vision that was there from the beginning uh, is very helpful to me at times. And I suppose as someone who's a kind of storied horror filmmaker now, are there kind of cardinal rules that you set for yourself that I suppose things that you want to make sure, what beats you kind of feel like you need to hit or certain like techniques or, you know, because I love a jump scare. Like I know you're not supposed to like jump scares. I fucking love a jump scare. And when we watched this film last, I watched this last night, when I say it was a crowd pleaser, the amount of screams are like, <laughs> ah, like that. You got us, Scott, you really got us. <laughs> I think the key to it is you don't have fake jump scares. Don't, and, and the key is use them somewhat sparingly and make sure they're effective, you know? And if they're not effective, get rid of them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I've sort of, uh, bro- I think I've really gotten a good grip on what makes an effective jump scare, how to, how to do them when the audience is not expecting them, you know? And the ones in the black phone, I think the movie almost seduces you into thinking, oh, there's no jump scares in this movie. And right about the point that you're believing that comes probably the biggest one in the film. <laughs> but yeah, I, but I'm the same way. I love a good jump scare. I love being, especially with an audience when that happens and you hear, you feel the shock, you hear yeah. the tittering of laughter and the audience feeling like, oh, they, they got me, you know? I, yeah, and I kind of feel like, I mean, I feel this, I've watched so many movies that I'm kind of like preempting things at this point. I'm like, what's going to come next? And and so I feel sometimes when there's like a bit of a bait and bait and switch, where it's yeah. like, wait, hold on, don't <laughs> manipulate me. <laughs> I, 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 and I think, I think, uh, uh, I think everyone in their heart likes a good jump scare. I think that what, um, where horror movies sell themselves short is when that becomes the basis for what is is regarded as the effective scariness of the movie. Because a jump scare is like cotton candy. It's just, it goes in your mouth and it dissolves and it's gone, you know? And to me, effective horror is much more about tone and creating a suspenseful and ominous tone. Yeah, but it's also having that levity to kind of like, give you a breather and I think in this you had some like some really funny moments and I have to say Madeline McGraw like my girl I still laugh at her lines but I've watched the film a hundred times while I'm finishing it you know and there's a couple of moments that she has that would make me laugh every single time I would see them yeah I mean there's something sometimes when you hear kids swear it doesn't feel natural, but the way she swears and some like I, I, you must have had fun coming up with certain swear words that she would say. And did you have? Did her parents were like, Ooh. well, you know, when I, when I I've passed a lot of children in my career, and I I love working with kids. They're very truthful. Um, if they're good, you can really speak to them like adults emotionally in terms of the the, the emotional com- complexities of what they're feeling in a scene. And, uh, but one of the casting process, an important part of the casting process for me is interviewing the parents, you know, and if I don't, because I know what I'm doing, if, if, if I do my job well, both Mason and Madeline are going to have huge careers, you know, and, uh, and I, I always interview the parents before I cast them and make sure that I feel within myself that, that, that this person, this kid has a good enough support system and, and par- parents who are responsible and are going to, be able to sh- help shepherd them through any resulting success of a movie. Yeah. And I mean, having Ethan Hawke as like a grabber, he could be like really scared, but also a pretty cool person to kind of play opposite given his like child actor days. 
I mean, I remember what was the film he did? Um, the dog <laughs> white fang. Okay. It's like back those days. I'm old piece of it, but like oh, it's so <laughs> funny that you you it's so funny you bring that up. I had a uh, I was I just finished a junket in in uh, Guadalajara. And I had, uh, and some uh, uh, journalist interviewing me was very funny. He goes, uh, "And what was it like working with that hack? Uh, uh, with or what? Uh, what was it? Oh, he said you must get tired of carrying Ethan Hawke. That's what he said." And I and I laughed and I said, "I said, yeah, the guy's just a hack. <laughs> For me, all he would have is White Fang. <laughs> I mean, he's so good. He's so good in the movie. You know, he's really he's really quite remarkable. And it's a side of Ethan that no one's seen before." You know, and he and he when I offered him the role, you know, before he read the script, he told me, he said, I, I'm probably not going to do this. I, I really don't play villains. And and uh, and he kind of told me why. And I said, well, this is a <laughs> a, 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 a child sadist, kill, you know, serial killer. <laughs> and he wears a mask the whole time. So you won't even see your face. So I don't know why you would do this role. Uh, <laughs> after he read it, he left me a voicemail the next morning in the voice of the grabber saying it's reading one of the lines from the script and that's how he that's how he that creepy message was how he told me he was going to do the movie i feel like he's in this phase of his career like in series of ones he plays this kind of very weird character like two characters and then obviously with moon uh, moon Knight, he's like sinister kind of thing yeah I do, look you know i when i worked with him on on sinister he he had never done anything in horror or even that kind of dark thriller so he was very trusting and you know so much about that is timing i'd be like ethan you gotta you gotta walk slower and then you gotta put a pause between these two lines it was specific things like that you know um and and he really came to trust me you know because with the, the result of that movie and on this one it was like a little bit of a different actor showed up he's so he was so loose he was so um casual easy about what he was doing and i i just feel like ethan has evolved into one of those upper echelons of, of it's like when Matthew, it's like the, the Matthew McConaughey, yeah. you know, the McConaughey, <laughs> where all of a sudden everybody was like, when did Matthew McConaughey turn into Daniel Day-Lewis, you know? And uh, and I kind of feel like Ethan's at that moment, yeah. you know, where he can he can do anything yeah. right now. And, and I also well. love his, yeah. I mean, I love, I also loved in Daybreakers, like, I love that. I love that. By the way, he he really likes it's that. And he did yeah. the purge. That's his he's own. like horror guy. Yeah. He's like a scream king. He, but like he's a scream king. <laughs> but he doesn't survive. But, but the thing with Sinister is that Sinister was the first movie that that he knew was going to be really scary. And he was he doesn't like watching horror. And he was afraid that you know, like it would be a very scary process. And I was like, dude, making a horror film is the most fun <laughs> kind of especially with kids because it's like Halloween every day for them. They and, love and the mask. So the mask he wears, because there's a few versions of it, but like, I don't know why. I know people say it's like the um, Lon Chaney London After Midnight look, but it reminds me of darkness in legend, like Tim Curry's face. That's what it reminded me of. Yeah, yeah. I've heard a lot of the London After Midnight. Uh, that's the first time I've heard the Tim Curry reference. That's that's actually quite good. <clears throat> but, but, but the smile mask was actually taken from uh, a, an old black and white film called The Man Who Laughs. And, and the smile of the character on that was one that I always found very disconcerting. That was, I gave that to Tom Savini. I basically, you know, had the idea of wanting to play into the tradition of the horror mask, you know, and the iconic, and I wanted to make an iconic villain, iconic horror mask, but I thought, how can we evolve it? It's always kind of the same version of the same thing, whether it's Freddy or Jason or Ghostface or Leatherface, whatever. 
And then the idea of splitting the mask up, having three masks, not one, and each one of them can be divided up. So the grabber gets to choose which piece he wears depending on the effect that he wants to have on his victims. You know, that became really interesting. And I think Ethan really understood that and really utilized how he performed depending on which piece of the mm. mask I had him wear. Yeah. Well, I think I have to let you go, but I have to ask one thing, and it's not about Doctor Strange 2, because you've got some cool projects coming up, and it'd be really remiss of me if I didn't ask about Labyrinth. Oh, God, I wish I wish I could talk about them, but, you know, it's especially, they're big movies, they're big event movies that I, I'm working on mostly. I do have a lot of smaller stuff in television that I'm very excited about. I have, I have, I have a TV deal with Blumhouse, um, I can't talk about this. <laughs> no. Uh, and, and look, the, I, I can't talk about them because I don't know if I have permission to or not. I don't want to get in trouble with any of my producers. Um, but yeah, but I have a lot of irons in the fire right now. I'll say that. Just for you then, like, you know, right now, there's such a discussion about horror as a genre. And I don't know if you like, have you put that elevated horror genre? Like, where do you think we are? I suppose right now in the evolution of it and I suppose making room because it was really interesting that before the film came uh before I watched the film two trailers they showed with this Idris Elba beast and that which is kind of yeah. like you yeah, kind of horror but kind of action thriller type thing but also then um no uh, no the um that trailer is fantastic I really like it yeah so like it's so interesting seeing where we are and the ex I feels like it expanded more than ever so how for do you sure and what's it? happened is that you know for the first time in in my lifetime uh there are young uh, you know up and coming sort of freshly starting filmmakers who are high art movie makers you know who really aspire to make uh, mostly independent high art films and their genre of choice is horror that's never happened before you know for the last you know, 30 years, the only guy we really had was was Wes Craven, you know, and he's gone. I think James Wan is the closest thing to, you know, an auteur working in, in the genre. He started three major franchises, you know. But in terms of what's happened, what's happened recently is I look at movies like, you know, Ari Aster's Hereditary or, or, or Robert Eggers' The Witch um, or It Follows. You know, these were all movies that I found incredibly scary very fulfilling as horror films, but I would also call all of them very high aspirational art films. And and uh, and when the the higher uh, artistic aspiration meets with really scary genre uh, filmmaking, and you've got filmmakers who are going to continue to work in those genres, it's very exciting because the great the greatest horror films that we all reference were mostly made by landmark directors who did a one-off in the genre. The Shining mm. with Kubrick or, you know, uh, uh, um, The Omen with Dick Donner or, you know, e even Rosemary's Baby, I think was, was Polanski's only straight horror film, you know? And so many of these movies were by great directors who would sort of go in that avenue one time. I just think it's an exciting time where the kind of disrespect for the genre has been lifted and and I think people are starting to feel like uh, like it's it's as as valid and as important to cinematic genre as any other. And for me, that's always what I aspire to be a part of. It was seeing Dario Argento's Suspiria that made me want to be a horror filmmaker. Because when I saw that, I was like, oh, horror doesn't have to be low budget, <laughs> you know, inartistic, you know, cobbled together uh, exploitation. It can really be high art. 
And uh, and I'm not saying that that's what my films are. I'm just saying it's certainly what I what I aspire to is a, is, a, is a measure of artistic achievement and entertainment. So what I'm hearing here is that maybe the best thing you ever will make is a rom com that one time. <laughs> The one I'll do a one-off rom-com and it'll be the funniest, most romantic film ever made. <laughs> and it'll be like, yeah. Find a genre for twenty years. He re-envisioned the rom-com. <laughs> I think the chances of me doing a rom-com are about equal to the chances of me making it into the NBA. <laughs> oh, okay, right. Well, we can. Agree. I think we can agree that Tony Collette should have won an Oscar for Hereditary. Well, Tony Collette should have won an Oscar for Hereditary. And it should have been her second one because she also should have won for the sixth sense. She should have won for the sixth. Oh, yeah. Great. This is, yeah, agreed. Okay. And on that agreeable note, Scott, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. I cannot wait to talk to you again. Great Hopefully time. not sooner. Great talking <laughs> to you. Thanks so much. So that was Scott and me. No, I didn't speak about Doctor Strange too. I tried to, but I think he's like, that's, uh, that's a line in the sand. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to talk about it anymore. I'm it's fair cool. enough, dude. I also don't want to talk about Doctor Strange anymore. <laughs> I was so because I was like, don't. I want to know about Labyrinth. He's like, I can't, you know, can't talk to you about it. And I'm like, oh, God, give me something, Scott. No, <laughs> love Scott. Thank you so much. So I suppose let's get into it then. Um, this is interesting because last week we had Spiderhead, which was based on a short story. This is based on a short story. I read the short story, uh, as mentioned in the interview, prior to doing it and it was really interesting to me how six i how i personally felt successfully it, uh, it expanded on the short story in a way that felt quite organic and also added elements so there was like you know the the female character that's a far bigger character in the movie than it is than it is in the short story so i suppose you guys you haven't read the short story i no. did you did okay clarice let me come to you first then how do you think as an adaptation, it worked. Uh, really well, I think. Um, the short story is like, I mean, it's not very many pages. It's very minimalist. <laughs> they uh, put the short in short story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's probably worth mentioning that Joe Hill is the son of Stephen King, because I think that at least informs a lot of what the the vibe of the short story is quite Stephen King-esque uh, in in the sense that it's like very evocative, but there's not like a lot of, um, I guess, a lot of story to it, or a lot of structure. It's more about the like the feeling of the phone ringing and like the kid in the basement and then the question of why is he, why is he there and who is the grabber. And I think like, what was so impressive about this adaptation is that it carries over so much of that sense of mystery and I like that by the end of the movie you still don't really know who the grabber is he he's like or what his intentions are and and I think you get a little bit of I think you like you can you can kind of put in what you want into the film which I find really impressive with horror like there are certain images that I found really like really scary just because of what they implied without outright saying anything and I think with Ethan Hawke's performance as well 
it's so restrained in a way that he's not he's he's far more like john wayne gacy than than pennywise the clown in terms of vibes and there's like just one shot of him and he's sitting at the top of the staircase yeah and he's got like no shirt on you're like why the fuck he's not wearing a shirt (laughs) and he's just sitting there with the mask which you probably all seen from the poster and and a belt in his hand and like that image in itself i was like god that's scary because there's no there's no context to it (laughs) there's no real explanation but you as the audience can read so much into it and i think that that's really clever yeah i I agree i think like sometimes you can be spoon-fed too much sometimes Mm -hmm. actually the scary the scariest thing is not knowing is the unknown and i think that's i think you're so right what his intentions are and the reasons for the way he is i mean there's little hints about like I like like there's a line where he's like, "Oh, I, I, you, you, no one hears anything down here. Like, I that phone hasn't worked since I was a kid." And I was like, "Oh, why was you kept down here as a kid? Like, is this why you're like that?" And it's like, "Oh, paranoia." Um, and one, uh, you, you're not a massive horror fan. I think we've established that <laughs> for many episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, we were at the same screening for it, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because. You obviously had a very different reaction to it to me. So I suppose for you, I mean, I'm looking at your squadcast name. (laughs) (laughs) A little less horror, a few more laughs, please. Is that your like critical take? You need more more laugh moments? (laughs) That, That is more a take on the world at large, the real world at large, and, you know, how it might be bettered by a few more laughs and a little less horror. And I was trying to do a play on Elvis and the black bone and sort of be all cool like that. That 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 is how that came together. <laughs> all right, Gal Gadot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was. I think it's a cool score cast name. Um But no, I I did enjoy no, enjoy is the wrong wrong word because it's a horror film. I did find this film to be very effective. Um in a satisfying way. I, I like that. I think the scares were really good. There's the first jump scare, the first really big jump scare in particular, I had a full-bodied reaction to that. Uh, and you will know what I'm talking about if and when yeah. you see it. Um, and I think <laughs> it was really cool seeing this film in the cinema, actually, because everyone was really into it. Uh, there was cheering, there was you know clapping, I think, at one point. Um, again, you could probably guess when that point is, if and when you watch the film. Uh, so, yeah, I enjoyed the experience of watching the movie. I think it came together very well. I would have liked to have known a little bit more about the grabber personally, because while I don't want to be all the way spoon fed, I, they don't really hardly give us anything. I know there's a few hints here and there, but I would have liked more to, uh, grab, grabbed onto a little bit, <laughs> grabbed onto, um, with the grabber a little bit, but yeah, I thought, I thought Ethan Hawke's performance was fantastic. I, and, and, everything that he was doing with the mask was really, really interesting as well. Uh, having it be detachable, having it, and sometimes the top half is done, sometimes sort of like the bottom half is gone. Um, I, I found that to be really interesting as well. I think um, with like, yeah, I, either talk, I mean, come on, the guy, um, I feel that he's in this phase of his career where it's like, I'm just going to go weird. Because I don't know, there's this movie <laughs> Zeros and Ones that he was in where he plays like two characters. I didn't like it too much, but like I think his performance in it was like, oh, he just loves like pushing it. And I think, or like 
he loves a character where he can like sink his teeth in and just become it. Like, he, and you get that impression that like, oh, and even in the interview, like Scott's like, oh yeah, he uh, he like called me up on the phone in the grabber voice and stuff. Um, but I also think the kind of beauty and the lack of information about the grabber is part of the fact that like. I like the fact that we don't need to, like, humanise a lot of bad guys. Sometimes, like, bad guys can just be bad guys. Um, there are enough bad guys in the world <laughs> um, who do terrible things for seemingly no reason other than, like, power, whatever, and all that sort of thing. So that worked for me. I love that you mentioned the jump scares because I love jump scares. I mean, Scott talked about it, but, like, I find that, like, there weren't too many of them in this film and they worked perfectly. And I And I... I think this what I had a really good balance. I think the horror in this, where it's like the kind of the kind of like the slow, sinister, nerve wracking. It's like these empty spaces and like just like then the menacing kind of image of Ethan Hawke, the grabber, in certain situations. Like although sometimes the close ups on his face, or like when it's just like he's watching him. It's like oh god, that's so creepy. It's so uh. um, and even the kind of makeup they do for the ghosts and stuff like that. I thought that was really good. But I'd love to really talk about. I suppose one thing. I suppose the kids really, and also like what that bring brought for a kind of um, I don't know the levity. I would say. Uh, that it that it offered the film because obviously so much horror you need a bit of that <laughs> you need a recovery period and I think Madeline McGraw. So what plays... you're saying is you want a little less horror and a few more laughs. No, I want exactly <laughs> the math that's in this. <laughs> that's exactly. It's like I need exact want this and I think the balance of the comedy in this just to kind of like let you off, let you breathe again was perfect. Um, Madeline McGraw, the young actress who plays Finney's sister. I mean, she's like the MVP for me. Clarice, what did you think? I thought, yeah, I thought both the kids, her and uh, Mason Thames, uh, were, like, really amazing because it's a fucking intense movie. Like, I didn't really laugh very much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I thought both of them, like... What what was really interesting, sorry, it's kind of not answering your question, but what was so interesting about this movie to me is the way that I think it speaks to what I've always thought the moral panics uh, and the sort of like moral panic about serial killers and child abduction that was very prevalent in the late 70s, early 80s. is the idea that it's it's always kind of created as an excuse so that people don't have to look at what's happening in their own homes and like in their own communities. And the way that this film draws such a strong parallel between the grabber, who's the sort of almost paranormal figure who's sitting there with the belt being fucking creepy. And also the dad, their dad who is abusive and who uses the belt on, on the kids. Like the, the fact that there's such a direct parallel between those two characters, I thought was like, like it's really dark, but <laughs> but it's like really effective, and um, I think yeah, going back to like having these like really intense kid performances that I think also the kids are really smart. They don't they don't come across as idiots. <laughs> They're like smart kids and capable kids. And the movie by the end of it sort of for me transforms into like it's sort of how without giving away like how horror movies have often like treated misogyny in the past 
in terms of like main characters like maybe getting a little bit of their agency back like it's like that but for child abuse which i don't know if i've really seen before Mm. and i was so like wow wow okay cool like that's really impressive and it's sort of like quite bold and brave to to make the film so directly about that uh and yeah and i think like to make that work you needed like very good child actors and both of them were like they were she can deliver a swear word that's what i was laughing at every time she i like what she said um was it dumb fucking fart knockers (laughs) (laughs) but it's interesting you know like i would say when you know stephen king in a way i feel like they made it more they added a more of a stephen king element like they expanded that because it made me think of like i don't know if this is a spoiler i don't think it is but like there's like a kind of like shine element to it and i was like oh this feels Mm. super stephen king now um amon what did you rate of the kid the kiddies yeah the kids are all right in my book no um yeah no they they were really really good I uh, especially liked Madeleine McGraw's sass, as you say. Enjoyed that. I thought Mason Thames got better as the film went along, um, especially in the scenes in the basement. I thought it was very, very impressive. A lot of the time, um, he's mainly only working with himself um, in a lot of the scenes, and that's hard acting to do, and he does a really good job of that. Um, so, yeah, very, very yeah. effective as well, again. And, yeah, they have bright futures ahead I'm sure yeah. okay go on Clarice I also I like James Renzo and he <laughs> yeah. always I, I like when he turns up <laughs> yeah. in movies I love it I love <laughs> he's it he's such I an enjoyable yeah. screen presence <laughs> he's playing like yeah conspiracy theorist like coke you know what I think I like uh, one thing I also like <laughs> enthusiast <laughs> one thing I liked uh, just as before we go like the change from the book is like the character the grabber in the book is like this really obese kit guy I like the fact that he's not, because I feel like using, making bad guys fat feels like such a, like, tired cliche. So I like the fact that they've actually made him, like, <laughs> oh no, it's just like this really hench guy. So I, that was one of the kind of changes I appreciate from the book. From, from the book. <laughs> I do think, uh, I know that we've touched on it a little bit in this discussion, but it is worth reinforcing the fact that this isn't a traditional horror in a sense, because the jump scares are few and far between. I've seen a few uh, critical reviews uh, that have taken um, that have viewed that in a negative light, and I sort of enjoyed the film for the creepiness. For the I don't know dread. what you mean. It's not a traditional horror. I don't get that. I mean, it seems like a feel like a pretty <laughs> textbook horror movie. It's it's grim, but like I I I almost look at it more as more of a psychological thriller at times, as opposed to just an out and out we're out to scare you all the time. I mean, like, it's got ghosts like, on a serial yourself, killer. I don't but, know what else you want from a horror movie. That seems pretty... But as you said, I, I'm guessing what I'm saying that the, the, the scares in this film are very few and far between. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is, that what you, is that what you think or are you saying that you've, you've read that in, in reviews? Both. Okay. Yeah. I Both. mean, I disagree with yeah. that. I think it's like a pretty much like shut and cut. <laughs> cut and shut horror movie. Okay. I mean... I, <laughs> I mean, that's like saying The Shining's not a horror movie. <laughs> it's it's like yeah, not uh, like a, a maybe maybe the worst traditional like horror movie was the wrong one. Like, in terms of the, the, the yeah. scare counts, in terms of the the jump scare stuff, there's not much of that. But and as we'll like see from the interview, I, well, when you listen back to the interview, Scott explains like the jump cut count and stuff like that. So we spoke about that, but but I yeah yeah, yeah no I I 
I like that. I I like the keep like that. There's one moment where a character is trying to open a padlock, and that was like as scary. That's what I'm as saying. So like I don't really under, like this. Yeah. You know what? Sorry, I I get you, but I just I just I feel like the idea that you can. The, the idea that you can, like, say it needs to have X number of jump scares to make it a horror is kind of, like, redundant <laughs> and such an arbitrary way of seeing it. Like, it's very obviously a horror movie. Like, it has every single... Like, if any beat that you have from a horror movie... So the idea that it's not traditional... <laughs> I mean, again, this is a double whammy. Ghost story plus serial killers plus child... I mean, like, how how much horror do you want? Like... <laughs> There's balloons, fuck. <laughs> Black balloons. Like, I don't know. Like, this, to me, this is like... The kids like, on the bicycles. This is like hardcore, <laughs> undiluted horror. Personally, that's that's what I see as. Because it's kind of like saying traditional horror and then like the elevated horror and things. It's like, can we just like... We kind of like so... I feel like so often we're so busy trying to say this isn't a horror. <laughs> Said, oh, this is more of this. Like, you know, is Alien a horror movie? Well, it's a sci-fi. It's like, well, no, it's obviously a horror movie. I think it's just like, you know, mm. it is what it is. I don't know. Clarice, do you have anything <laughs> to add before we do screen stream skip? Yeah, I, I don't know. This is very much a horror movie to me. It's got as many jump scares as like Midsummer. Yeah. So. <laughs> valid. I feel like valid. I mean, I guess I would say like the one thing is it's so it's a Blumhouse movie. And I feel like Blumhouse does the two types of horror movies, right? <laughs> There's like this, this, this sort of uh, this stuff that's quite really good and intelligent, and you know has lots of ideas and themes behind it. And then there's like whatever Happy Death Day, <laughs> like the stuff that they Happy Death Day, which is fun, and I love Happy Death Day. But then there's the stuff stuff they sort of like that is meant to be just really fun and silly, and that has all the jump scares in it. I think this movie is very much in the this movie's got themes <laughs> section of Blumhouse horror movies. <laughs> Scott's the horror guy. And he, he'll, he'll own it. That's what he's doing. He'll, he'll, he'll be, <laughs> I can imagine if anyone saying it's like, not to tell her, we're like very annoyed by that. But, um, I defend it as a horror, a ghostly, serial clearly, child abuse weirdy horror. Now let's vote. <laughs> I'm on. Screen, stream, or skip? Screen. Uh, Clarice? Screen. Yeah, screen. Screen and scream. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. my mum was right. On our, on our, in our, the screen that we were in, it really makes you love going to the cinema because everyone is just like having a great, well, maybe not everyone, but like from what we heard, it felt like a really communal experience. I love going to the cinema and everyone's like feeding off each other's energy. And there is this kind of sense of cheering and stuff when things go right or screaming when it goes wrong. So yeah. Um, Black phone. Dial it up. From one horror story to another, maybe for some people involved. Um, here's Elvis. From Baz Luhrmann. The director who reimagined Shakespeare, reinvented the musical, and redefined a classic comes a bold new vision of an American icon. But this ain't no nostalgia show. We're gonna do something different. We can't go on together. With suspicious vibes. With suspicious vibes. Would not have been the Elvis song that I chose, but it's still good. That is my favorite Elvis mm. song. 
What's your favorite Elvis song? I like his earlier stuff, maybe. I like, I like, like, Hound Dog and... You ain't nothing but a hound dog. This is Elvis, as you might have guessed. (laughs) (laughs) This is Elvis, a movie about Elvis. (laughs) The film chronicles the life and career of singer and actor Elvis Presley, from his early days as a child to becoming a rock and roll star and movie star as well as his complex relationship with his manager, uh, Colonel Tom Parker. Directed by Baz Luhrmann from a screenplay by Luhrmann, Sam Bromwell, Craig Pierce, and Jeremy Donor. It stars Austin Butler as Elvis Presley, <laughs> uh, with Tom Hanks, Helen Thompson, Richard Roxburgh, Olivia Dijon, uh, Luke Bracey, Natasha Bassett, David Wedham, yeah, <laughs> Kelvin Harrison Jr., uh, Xavier Samuel, and Cody Smith-McPhee in supporting roles. There's a lot of people in this movie because... There are a lot of people in Elvis's life. <laughs> uh, I did not so realize I guess, you were such a big David Wenham fan. <laughs> he's fucking Faramir. Oh, of course. That was it. That I should have known. <laughs> Do I like David Wenham? Come on. <laughs> and he's also been like in all the Baz Luhrmann's. I guess so, like a good place to start would be, I let's t- have like a, where is everyone at with are you an Elvis fan are you a Baz Luhrmann fan because I feel like both of those things are really going to shade people's opinions of this movie (laughs) Hannah um I love Baz Luhrmann um I I love Elvis Presley songs I don't really I couldn't really say that I'm that invested in his life story beyond what I already know (laughs) Mm. um but that doesn't mean I wasn't intrigued about I always find it intriguing where it's someone who's a big cultural figure and you're like, oh, this all... and I kind of like the idea of Baz Luhrmann being the person to look behind the scenes and tell a story. So that's where I'm at. I'm on. Yeah, I like Baz. I like Elvis. Um, I probably knew a lot less about Elvis than Hannah did going into this. And I feel like because of that, I enjoyed this film a little bit more because it was sort of an introduction to who Elvis was in a sense. I think if you go into this film knowing a lot about Elvis already, you might find... I mean, I, I even still say, um, having watched this film, going into the film with the knowledge of Elvis that I had, that it doesn't go as deep um, as a biopic should. Um, and it very much focuses on the icon rather than the man behind the icon, um, which is what the really good biopics do. So I wouldn't put it in that upper echelon of biopics, but in terms of just... Um, the entertainment factor, this film, I think Baz and Elvis are a perfect match um, in that regard because the performances, especially in this scene, in this film, are incredible. It's interesting that you said that like a good a good biopic always shows you the person behind the legend. And I don't know if I agree because mm. I think like this is a pretty good example of like I don't think I don't think anyone's ever going to make a movie about Elvis the guy because that's totally impenetrable to me. I feel like the right thing to do here would be to, is to make a a movie about Elvis like the mythical figure because that is what he is at this point. I mean, Hannah, what's what's your take on on like man versus legend? <laughs> Well, if they're going to be honest about the man, it wouldn't make it would be a bit of pro- more even more problematic a film than I want it to be. I think, you know, as much as 
I mean, I think you have to say that the, the family, the Presley family were involved in this film. So obviously there was going to be an angle. And when it came to, I think, let's get it, like, get it straight out of the way. But like Priscilla Presley, um, uh, she was 15 when they met. They mentioned in the film, oh, she was a teenager. She was 15 and he was 10 years older than her. And actually they kind of like, they kind of like made it very chaste. <laughs> The suggestion there but I think the whole the original story is that she ended up getting taken back to the and getting held for a bit like stowed away until though she was old enough to get married when they met in Germany and I feel like they really should go with that um which I think is kind of like yeah I, I don't know I don't a bit of course like you know what you're gonna say when it's your mom <laughs> that you're talking yeah. about and it I, I assume that Le- probably Priscilla felt like had felt autonomy or whatever and Lisa Marie obviously has a different thing but like still <laughs> it's stat- anything that went on there is like statutory badness but um yeah. it but- feels like there needs to be another movie about that and it's definitely like it, what for me was like it's difficult because Priscilla's still here like telling her story and it's almost like I want there needs to be a movie that's her entirely telling her story yeah. in the way that she feels comfortable like while she's still alive that i think this is the, the yeah. struggle isn't it when you do biopics where people are involved because it's like uh, on the one hand you want that sense of like authenticity and truth that they can bring but then there's also like there's a truth and then there's either side of it and we all have our own perspective on that and what we want to show in a public realm you know, one of the things that's interesting about, like, King Richard, obviously the Williams sisters are involved, and they have, like, one little nod to the fact that he's fathered, like, all the, he had a whole other life before them, you know, and it's kind of, like, still position him as this hero, and it's like, yeah, but he's a kind of complicated guy. I don't know, it's, it, like, or Bohemian Rhapsody, where it's a perfect example of, like, when someone's involved and it's not. <laughs> Great. But to back to what you were originally saying, I think with Elvis, for me personally, I enjoyed... I enjoyed the fact that it showed me how he became the star and then also kind of like the kind of tragedy that came from it, um, you know, and, and who he was controlled by. And actually, I think that's such an... For, considering, we're, you know, we've got the new Marilyn movie coming out soon, I do think there's such an interesting conversation about the toxicity of show business, which basically, like, when it even was like studio systems, think about Judy Garland and all this type of stuff, by the way that, like... The, the predatory behaviour of people who owned these, a lot of these, like, these kids. They started off out, they were young people who don't know any better. They come from these places where they're not really that educated and they kind of think these things are happening. So, you know, as much as I can say Elvis might be problematic one way, I do think there's this, like, real interesting case of how people, these young kids are plucked out of obscurity and then thrown into the world and then they're basically, like you are working for me, you're my performing monkey. And I think that's what really cap- what Baz Luhrmann really captures in this film. Yeah, I mean, that's, let's switch over to that feels like a good way to lead into the performances. I mean, I'm on two, two big performances in this. <laughs> Tom Hanks as Colonel Tom Parker and then Austin Butler as Elvis Presley. I mean, who stood out for good or worse in this movie? Uh, Austin Butler should get an Oscar nomination off the back of this. I think he's that good. Just absolutely sensational as Elvis. And, you know, there's so many Elvis impersonators out there in the world to have a performance that rises above mere impersonation or mimicry or fakeness and just really fully embodying the presence 
of Elvis, especially when he's on stage. I mean, I said it before, I'll say it again. The performance scenes in this movie are off the chain good. <laughs> so good. And yeah, the mannerisms, the movements, maybe not so much the vocals, because I was reading that he didn't do all the vocals uh, in this film, but it's still an incredibly impressive performance. I didn't really know much about Austin Butler before this, but this is a performance that will turn heads and has put him on the map, at least for me. Um, so I thought he was great. Tom Hanks, you know, the, he plays it very cartoonish um, in this film, and it doesn't help that he has to contend with a whole bunch of prosthetics as well. Um, so his performance is entertaining in bits and starts, but it's definitely, you know, Tom Hanks has got a long library of incredible work. I wouldn't uh, put this in the upper echelon of, of that. So yeah, it's, this film is all about Austin Butler for me. Mm, and yeah, I guess with like Tom Hanks, the fairy tale, like this movie is for me really pitched. It's, it's like a Disney fairy tale and Colonel Parker's the evil stepmother and Elvis <laughs> is like Rapunzel in her tower. I mean, <laughs> Hannah, what? I mean, that's a very Baz Luhrmann way to approach the Elvis story I wondered if if before we wrap up you could talk a little bit about like obviously his style his approach mm -hmm. to things the look the costumes like how that all feeds into this story that he's trying to tell well first can I just give my opinion on Austin and Tom <laughs> no Hannah no as, you may not as someone <laughs> as someone who has been an Austin Butler fan since Sharpay's Fabulous Adventure. <laughs> <laughs> who wow. has watched all the Carrie Diaries. <laughs> who I have been a fan of Austin Potter for years. And I feel I've got this payoff. I think he's sensational. I think it, you know, it, it, just even the tenor of his voice, just the way he delivers, like it just felt, for me, it was just wonderful. And there were even moments of it where he really did look like Elvis, like, and the thing sometimes you can get away with not looking perfectly like Elvis, but just having that sense of like that that energy, that aura, and like the way he moved on the stage, it was just honestly brilliant. And he really captured that, I suppose, the kind of emotional integrity because there was moments where he's like he proper slipped, and you really felt this like painful kid underneath. You're like, oh my god, um, Tom Hanks, ugh, absolutely no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm I'm just like I just I, this is another example of where I'm like. Just hire someone who, like, looks like him. Stop with the prosthetics. Stop with the fat suits. Because you couldn't see any performance at all. It was just... There was no... Like, it was just in his eyes. And I'm sorry, but you could not... There was no register. It was just so weird. And it really bummed me out. Because it just felt like... It, I was so distracted by his accent. Because I was like... I get what they're trying to do. Because it's like, where's his origins from? And all this sort of stuff. But it was just like, oh, God, no. I hate it. And then I suppose this leads me into, like, I suppose the whole kind of, like, structure of it. Um, and you're right, you know, he's he's very bombastic, Baz Luhrmann, and he loves that kind of, like, that Disney sensibility, this fairy tale thing, Moulin Rouge, Romeo and Juliet. You can see even the visions, the kind of fast zooms in, like, the operatic mu music at moments. It felt like, you know, the kind of, uh, the way that he shot Las Vegas, it reminded me of, you know, the opening shots of, like, looking at, you know, the kind of Rio <laughs> in Baz Luhrmann's uh, Romeo and Juliet, you know, mm. the kind of 
focusing around the helicopter shots there. And obviously in Moulin Rouge, the way it kind of zooms in and the way he enters rooms through a window. I love that. I love that kind of like fluidity and the way he has the camera work going. But I fundamentally, the framing device of this with Tom Parker, it felt like actually... Um, I don't think his abuser should have been the narrator because that's what you're telling me. You're, he's like, this is financial abuse and you're making the financial abuser the narrator of this story. And thus it doesn't even become his story either. It's like Tom Parker's impression of it. And I, and I even, the, and I think this, my, my issue with it the most is the writing. I love the world that he's built, Baz Luhrmann's built. I think it's beautiful. I just, even, you know, even in the opening sequence with WB and it's like the gold, the costumes, everything about it, the way it's shot, I loved it. I just didn't like the framing device or the script. There's a line in it where it kind of seemed to say, you know, and, and I don't think this is really spoiler, but it's like, you know what killed um, Elvis, his love for the fans. It's like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> it just felt like such a cop-out and it annoyed me because it felt like, no, what killed Elvis was drugs, <laughs> um, being like financially abused by someone forcing him to perform because you can't say you can't say at the end of a film saying fine i don't know it's I, you know what it's fucking biopic like it's not a spoiler <laughs> it's literally yeah, history. I feel like everyone knows the stuff about elvis but I like you can't say you can't well you know i just feel like if it's a history lesson like this is 50 years what, what, what's 1978 like this is it's, it's been 50 years or something but like i just feel like you can't say he was being financially abused for years and do this whole thing to show that and then try and like have a copper. It felt like it just did a disservice to Elvis's story. That really annoyed me about it. But, you know, I, I think it was just script wise. I think it just felt a bit, it was just that framing device just did not work for me at all. Um, yeah. Do you, now, what do you think? No, I agree with that. And I think if you amend that, then that will help with the film's long running time. Now, this is a 159-minute film, and at least for the first hour, I was feeling that runtime. It's only after that first hour, which, which for me was very much style of a substance, when the film slowed down and calmed down a little bit and got into the meat of uh, Elvis, and especially I, th I think it was when he's doing his first comeback, if you will, and he has um, a black jumpsuit on. That is when the film really began to click for me. Um, but yeah, that first hour, it's Baz is being Baz in that first hour. He's destroying every stylistic thing he can possibly throw at you all at the same time, from the camera movements to the edits. All of it is coming at you. And if you don't keep up, it's easy to get lost, I think, in that first hour. Yeah, I see your issues with the framing device. But I think it sort of worked for me because it made it very clear from the get-go that like this is not and cannot be the definitive story of Elvis like it has to be a take on it it has to be an angle on it and the angle is that you know Baz Luhrmann sees Elvis's life as the fairy tale as the like yeah the princess in the tower and the the evil the evil step well he sees it as a tragedy like he's mostly yeah things, isn't it apart from you know earlier stuff but like the last few things have been tragic isn't it Gatsby yeah which I guess comes from his opera because he has like a, a comes from opera and I think that informs so much of yeah. what he does even like as you said those zooms into the windows it's theatrical it's stage like dollhouse like I think yeah it's interesting for this movie because I 
every anytime anyone points out a flaw i'm like correct i agree with it <laughs> but also in my head i elvis's legacy and his career and his life was so complicated and there's so many layers to it that i feel like this was a really like good attempt at doing something <laughs> yeah and and maybe someone down the line will make a better elvis movie but for me like i'm happy yeah don't get me wrong like I, I, there's so much i loved about it just like and maybe the, i don't know it's just like i just hated the, the tom parker bit also i mm. think it tried to white say it basically white saviored <laughs> Elvis as well like yes. the way the way they talk about like I'm glad they deal a lot about how much he appreciates black music but he appropriate he culturally appropriated black music um obviously there's an inter- interesting thing about how he was raised within like the only white family within a black community but it really just like gave him as much as they had these figures like B.B. King and I think there's a woman um oh god I can't remember the character the name of her but is it oh Rosetta yeah yeah um, they kind of give her a bit of space but for me it really didn't contend there's a line with BB King and that's like that's um uh Calvin Harrison Jr plays him plays him and he says like you know you nothing will it's like oh you can do what you want you're a white guy but if I do it it's like it never really properly like interrogates the fact that he basically made his money and made his name by basically singing black songs. It's like, oh yeah, I'm going to do Hound Dog. It's like, oh well, well done, well done, Elvis. Thank you for doing Hound Dog. It's like, where's where's the money going back to the community that you borrowed from? You know. Yeah, and I think that's I what think, it doesn't with. I yeah, again, like I agree. I feel like for me, that was the movie's attempt to sort of like find the the middle ground nuance because there's the two extremes right of people's opinions on Elvis the one where it's like while he was very like he was a surprisingly crucial figure in like breaking down segregation specifically because I'll be talking forever if I explain all of this (laughs) or on the other side you know he was an active appropriator like you know a very negative harmful figure I think for me me, for me the truth has always kind of sat somewhere in the middle where it's like, but they didn't even attempt to show him as an appropriate. That's what I'm saying. It's like you can show but him I as think that, that fine figure, sh- but there was yeah. no there was no balance there. There was no other voice saying, "Yo, this dude's come in and like done that." And it's like that's again clearly from having having family involved in it. It was like we yeah. only want to position Elvis as this like good guy, tragic hero who he can't really do anything wrong. And he, oh, he just loved fans. And even a bit is like where Pris is like, I don't care, don't you fuck other women? It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think for me, like the film's position on it is that like he he came from a place of earnestly loving this music. It was the people around him who then, you know, capitalized on that and commodified that. And that's where like the appropriation angle comes from. So I think like it definitely has a stance on it. I don't know if it's the truth of what it was maybe maybe elvis was like ha 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 yes i would like to appropriate please let's go i i don't know but i think like it tries to 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 take a stance on it no but i i don't think it's as simple as saying like i don't think it's he was like actively trying to basically profit off the black community i don't think it's like i do Mm. think he appreciated it but one you you cannot fundamentally like you know, the history of the music industry from like Phil Spector and all that who would get black singers to voice tracks that white people would lip sync over. Like he contributed to keeping 
black people down and take making black music culturally accepted to white people that continues like today why white people so like i think you know that the, the these this intention versus impact you know there's a line that says like you'll make more money from this song than this, this kid will and it's like where what, i'm sure there are people at the time who were annoyed with elvis for doing it and they didn't include that voice but again as you said this is a disney movie and he's yeah. he's cinderella so you know, can't, he's like, he has to be the perfect victim. victim yeah, for perfect I think there's like and... a little bit of it, like that the idea of they they do say like you are successful because you're white, like you're able to, like we don't have the same opportunity. But no one you. seems like that upset about it, and I feel like some people would right. be upset about it. That's the thing. Yeah. Like, everyone's like, oh, good for you, Elvis. Mm. Oh, hey, Elvis, good friends. It's like, yeah, we don't care. You make money off it. That's fine. We'll be okay. We'll be in our little like caddy shack thing it's like yeah everyone's so nice it's all like oh yeah yeah partially because there isn't a figure to like necessarily attribute to that because uh, but this is obviously just what people said publicly we don't know what they thought privately publicly they was mostly positive stuff so i yeah but i agree i agree i think that's the tricky part of it is like how do you get that part of the story right because there are two extremes in this argument and it's like you have to settle somewhere and it's like wherever you settle it's just not gonna be right (laughs) yeah and look like you said this is not the you know this is the story of a tragedy and you know he's the tragic hero of it um and so it didn't really fit with the narrative they're trying to do but i think it's like you know I always say, like, oh, that's a different movie. It's like, how many... I don't want to know an Elvis movie. Like, I feel like there should be one biopic for each person. That's how I feel about Blonde. <laughs> the one. It's like, why do we have so many same things about the same person? Let's move on. <laughs> Let's do a BB King. <laughs> yes. Well, that's a really good point. There's always other people whose stories aren't being told. Yeah, exactly. So there we go. And also, Elvis isn't dead, so I don't know why everyone's chatting about He was abducted by aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Where's that story? That mainstream media don't want you to have that story. That's what it is. Imagine though, imagine if, sorry, sorry to spoil it doesn't end on him being abducted by aliens, but how <laughs> joked would that have been in like a director's cut? It's like, alternative ended. He's abducted by aliens. <laughs> He's abducted by aliens. Would watch. <laughs> Well, considering that, that it doesn't end with Elvis being abducted by aliens, are we still, are we screen streaming or skipping Elvis, Amon? Screen, if for nothing else than to see Austin Butler do his thing. Hannah? I think, I don't, it's like, it's the Colonel Tom Parker aspect (laughs) of it. That frame injury is really like, holding me back from a screen um i'm gonna say stream that's fair i i'm gonna say screen and also i just want to say for the record i support austin butler just using that voice now (laughs) (laughs) i think it's great i think it's bullshit he's doing in interviews yeah he still sounds like elvis (laughs) that's awesome yeah. And I fully support it because I think it's bullshit that we should just have to speak in the accent that we... <laughs> he might just not be with. able to shake it off. <laughs> I think it's that. I think it's partially he can't shake it off and probably, like, conspiracy theory, I think he doesn't want to because it's a great voice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward like, to hearing Elvis in June too. 
Yes. <laughs> Who's he <laughs> playing? Fade? What is he playing? Fed. Fader out there. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Screen, but bring a cushion. Uh, so, yes, that was Elvis. And now it is time. Oh. <laughs> yes, it's a long <laughs> ass movie. Sorry. I thought it was about, like, Elvis. Oh, no, no. Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and now it is time for our. Well, hello there, and welcome to the season finale of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, After six episodes, it's time to work out whether we had a good or bad feeling about this. If you've yet to watch the episode, please leave now and return when you have watched it, because we are entering the lawless, the outer rim of spoiler territory to get into our thoughts about the Star Wars spin-off. And let's start with that final fight we have all been waiting for. It's Vader versus Kenobi, part de. What do we think? Part like twat, when you think about it. Yeah, this is great. Part twat. Well, I mean, he was Anakin when they first... Well, part... Because it's the first time they've fought, but then I guess part two would be... Well, they fought in in the early, early episode. Yeah, but he was still Anakin then. No, that was Vader. Who was it? He was wearing Vader. In this episode. In, in this he's, series. He's wearing, he's wearing his Vader costume, isn't he? In, no, in... In this in series. Revenge of the Sith. No, no, no. Yeah, in Revenge of the no. Sith. Oh, uh, you're saying as Vader. You're saying it's, it's like yeah. part duh as Vader, but part... No, it's twat. part air of Vader because... No, it's not because he's not so confused. <laughs> That's part two, though. This happens before. This no. is part one. Listen. Oh, listen. <laughs> Because they fought in the early episode with the burning, with the fiery. Then there's part duh, and then okay, part toi in that's fair. It's part uh, a new hope. New hope. A new yeah. hope. Yeah. I'm glad we cleared that up. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That was> important. <laughs> anyway, Hannah, what do you think of part duh? Part meh. <laughs> really? Come Look, on. Look, I think the fundamental thing about. Um, there are no stakes. There are no stakes at all because we know that it has to get to this point. So there was never a point where I could watch this fight and think, oh God, who's going to get killed? Is someone going to get hurt here? Because you know neither of them are going to die. They can't because they have to die. One has to die in A New Hope and the other one in Return of the Jedi. So for me, it didn't have the... It was quite interesting to see the fight. I think it was a bit too dark for me. I like It was a very dark episode. <laughs> I, it's an, and it's, which is a very annoying when it's like you have to when we're watching in the morning I should have rewatched it at night time but like when you're like, like me it's like oh, for god's sake I can't see anything because <laughs> you're watching it in daytime so anyway um yeah I think it was I think it was it was fine it was no jewel of the fates I will say that like I've seen better fights like I think you know Last Jedi for me is like it's jewel of the fates and um Last Jedi the Ray and Kylo Ren against the, yeah, that for me is like <laughs> like playing that. Sorry to bring back to Lego Star Wars, but playing that in Lego Star Wars was so sick. You could plug in between like Kylo. Oh, it's so good. Anyway, <laughs> I actually think the fight that I did in Lego Star Wars was better than that. Darth <laughs> <laughs> it always comes so, back yeah. to Lego Star Wars, with you? Yeah, yeah, it always comes back. <laughs> Clarice, are you yay or nay or on part there? I'm. I'm kind, yeah, I'm sort of with you, Anna. I 
I liked it and I liked how bits of it was there. I thought the breaking of the helmet and then having Vader like talk to him with the lights of the lightsabers like reflecting his face like that was a really nice choice from Deborah Chow I like that she did that like there were like individual choices in that fight scene that was like oh that's cool that's a really nice idea yeah but yeah it didn't really it's like because I was just thinking oh so someone's just gonna have to walk away from this <laughs> just be like I'm good now actually and that's kind of how the fight ends <laughs> Kenobi's just like yeah, she I'm good. Bye. <laughs> and he walks off. I think I think for me, like emotion, this is my takeaway from all of Kenobi is like I think it was good. I liked it. I think it did the best that it could with like the premise it was given. But I'm I'm ready to move on from the Skywalkers. Like please <laughs> let's go somewhere else. <laughs> I'm it begging you. It confirmed to me that making Darth Vader the villain in this was the bat, the worst choice because it felt like if you'd have got like Darth Maul or some, I don't know if you'd have done something where it's far more, there's more stakes. We know something's going to happen between, between like Kenobi and Darth Maul. It was better, mm. but Vader and stuff. Uh, I would have preferred Kenobi. Or against Reva, else. Just have Reva as. Yes. The yes. That would have been. Yeah. I really liked the final fight uh, <laughs> between, Vader and Obi-Wan. Uh, a couple of things to say from uh, what you guys have been saying, first of all, in that the breaking of the helmet um, is a really, really cool moment. It's actually something that Star Wars Rebels did a few years back with Ahsoka versus Vader. Uh, and interestingly enough, in that sh- uh, episode, in that fight, Ahsoka broke the left side of Darth Vader's mask. And in Obi-Wan and Vader's fight, Obi-Wan breaks the right side of Darth Vader's mask. And the only time we see the mask fully removed is in Return of the Jedi, when Luke removes it and when Obi- when Vader has his sort of redemptive moment. And I kind of like that. And yeah, just the fight as a whole, I thought was really fun. I like how skilled they were. I like that we got in the previous episode that flashback of Anakin and Obi-Wan fighting um, when they were still Master and Padawan. And then because if you sort of think about that fight as they're fighting Obi-Wan and Vader in this episode, we see Vader doing movements that Anakin has done in the previous episode. And typically we don't see Vader move like that. But because we've seen that episode, we can sort of marry the two things and what they're doing with the fight styles with the vocals in that scene where Vader has his helmet split open and as you say with the the dialogue as well in that moment is great because early on in the season you have in that first conversation between Vader and Obi-Wan I am what you made me but when it's Anakin and Vader sort of you know fighting the internal battle almost when that helmet has been split open Vader basically says like you know you, you, you did not kill Anakin I did um and I like that sort of mini arc that that sort of you know, those two scenes. Kind of bullshit. Kenobi should, should still feel bad because, like, I still maintain that it's the Jedi Order's fault that yeah, one hundred percent. Stupid celibate. You should feel bad, Kenobi. <laughs> what I don't get, what I don't get about the Jedi, right? What I don't get is that like Kenobi 
Like the whole Jedi Order is based on emotions of empathy. <laughs> like that's why they help people. It's empathy, which is a feeling. And the idea, like the, the whole series is about him set, protecting Leia and Luke and actually having a godfather affection for these kids and wanting to protect them. So it's like even these master Jedis can't help but like show love and affection and it forms them. And it is. The Jedi, this whole celibate order is like bullshit. Bullshit, 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 bullshit. Yeah. That's my <laughs> Sarah Marshall. Because it's true. That's a brand impressive. Um, I, in, in terms of... I, I, the thing is, sorry, come on, I have the higher ground, so... <laughs> <laughs> okay, Hannah. <laughs> I have the higher ground, Anakin! Uh, sorry. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 I'd like to... I think we should talk about Reva, though, because I feel like that storyline was really good until it wasn't. <laughs> Because I even liked the kind of plot twist of that she was the kid, which was pretty much signposted from the beginning when yeah. you see like, but like, I didn't notice that to be fair. I was like, oh, mm. oh, it's her. Ooh. But, um. Did you really think I would not see it, youngling? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> He's such a cunt, Anakin. <laughs> that, that fight, by the way, between Obi-Wan, between, between Reva and Vader. Vader is so. <laughs> Like I know, I know he's an ass, but he's a very cool, menacing, skillful, powerful dick. And in that in that fight, it's just he's doing, yeah, it's it's very like he doesn't even draw his own lightsaber in that. The disrespect. I like the fact that he uses one hand. It's, yeah. like, it's like I don't even need two hands. Like, so I use my force and force with the other hand. It's sick. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, and I like that because it's like he's evil. Like I think that's the point. Like he becomes terrible and becomes dark, and he becomes the you know right hand of the emperor and i think it's important to show that side of him because i think obviously the clone wars did a lot to really like show that slow creeping descent that was lost in the prequel film suddenly went like zero to 100 i'm like suddenly so i appreciate that but i think with reba i mean the way she went suddenly from i'm gonna kill vader and then like now i'm gonna kill luke because I know it's uh, it's just like such a like because there's vengeance, but it's also like you obviously believe. I don't know. It's like one of those awkward things of like, how do you bring this person back? Is she so hell bent on vengeance that she would? She is so willing to kill other people in order to. I don't know. I needed a bit more about Reba for where she, she got to that point. Yeah, no, I agree. I feel like the the impetus for her being there is all off. Like, even the, the message that she sees from Bale doesn't, doesn't sort of say that uh, Vader, that, that, that Luke is Vader's son. It doesn't say what Luke is to Obi-Wan. It's just something that has her go to tattoo. It's a very sketchy in terms of the impetus for actually being there. But what happens when she is actually there and when she has her adaptive moments, I thought that was really well played and really well acted by Moses Ingram. Yeah. Yeah, she is great. Um, I think it was just the weird thing at the end, like with Luke. It's like, oh God, can we just do we have to do everything about Luke? <laughs> I love Leia. Leia's. This is what the best thing about this series was. I love this little Leia. I don't know what the what's the actress called. Vivian Lyra Blair has been fantastic. Oh, oh, love her to death. Love her to death. Because she's like, she, and then even at the end where she wears a little holster. That's the one good thing about this series is that it gave more context to, like, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. That is the best thing about this series. It really said, like, oh, now we get why she would have gone to him. 
And I think that's what's the beauty of the series, I think. That's what the, the perf- For me, that's why this, this, this series matters, why it's worth being told. Same, because I, I think I, I kind of <clears throat> box it up with this, this new impulse, which I think is the right impulse, to remind people that Leia was the other one. You know, when Yoda said there is another, he was fucking talking about Leia, and that she could have been just the hero that Luke was. It's just that because <clears throat> Luke's a guy, he got to be the hero and save the day and whatever. Whatever. But I like I like that narratively we are getting such a focus on, on Leia now. It was one of the things I did like about Rise of Skywalker is that little reminder that she <clears throat> is force sensitive to, that she is able to do all this shit and that yeah. she is an equal to Luke. Like, that was really nice. And I love that little speech at the end that he gives her about, like, oh, you're you're smart and intuitive, like your mother oh, God, and you're yeah. passionate, like your dad. And, oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, Ian McGregor's acting is fantastic. Yeah. Good job, I, but, I, but I will say, you know, as much as they're doing this, like, corrective stuff for Leia, I wish they just, in situ, talk about sexism. Because... Again, like they're trying to act like these things don't happen in these world, like this these political issues aren't happening, but clearly is the case because why do men? Why are men still in power? Like if why why is in this galaxy far away? Why are the same like patriarchal dynamics still present there? Like they've enforced this here. So for me, it's like let someone say let someone say it in world really like that like more specifically like. Oh yeah, like you you were sexist about because it's all good to have like female Jedi's, but like they weren't there in the beginning. They weren't like we just added them in. Like there are no apart from apart from a. I mean, even sorry again, going back to the Lego Star Wars, but <laughs> we're doing it's a Skywalker saga. And it's for the nine films, and the only female Jedi is Rey, and there's one version of of, of Jedi Leia where she's, but even that she's not a Jedi, and there's loads of men, and that's what I'm saying. It's like it would be really cool if they confronted this really head on. I'm not sure if they've really, have they done no, it? No, because really? it's all, I feel like it's constantly implied. Like, yeah, with Just even Sokka and Soka, with, I think even with Reva, like there's, it's constantly, constantly there in the way that women are talked to in the Star Wars universe, but no one, yeah, no one ever comes out right and says like, I'm treated this way because I'm a woman. It's never said. Like, you've got fascism, but you haven't got sexism. Like, just own it. Just own it, please. Like, I don't know. It's just, it reminds me up. Because I just need someone to, like, in world say, yeah, we we chose the guy over the girl. My bad. (laughs) We're sexists. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Bring it back to the fight as we wrap up. Um. A part of me likes the way it's resolved, and a part of me is also like, at this point, Obi-Wan, you know who Vader is. You know what he's about. You've seen him kill, you know, people in a town just upon arrival. You know what the Empire is doing. And I get the whole, it's against the Jedi code to against, you know, killing Colbert. But at the same time, he's right there. You got him dead to right. And I don't like the way that they resolved that. I think there was a cleaner way to do that. Even to have it as a point, like, Ob- like Vader initially thinks that Obi-Wan is dead and then um, he leaves the planet, and but then he hears sort of later on that Obi-Wan is still alive when he breaks out of the rocks or whatever. Has something like that, because when you just leave it like that, it's almost like, you know what 
all those deaths that Vader, you know, is going to enact, you could have, you had a chance right there to stop it. Um, I think fundamentally Jedi's aren't supposed to, like, isn't the whole point they're supposed to be peacekeepers? Like, the whole mm. point is that they don't want to kill. And, um, and even when he, you know, even when he, you know, chopped off Anakin's leg, he said, you've lost, you've, I've got the higher ground. It's like, just surrender. It's like, they're, it feels like only he, it's, they're only forced into choices of like killing people in self-defense. And like, at that point he had, he had, um, Vader banter rights. And I think he just felt like I've created this much as I still think he's created this monster and he's like, I don't want to. And also, yeah. like he loves him, he's yeah. not gonna. I thought. I don't think. I don't think Obi Wan was ever gonna kill. Vader. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't expect it to because obviously I know what's gonna happen in the future. But I would have liked, I guess, more of an internal battle with Obi Wan in that moment. In terms of, I know what you are. Like he calls him dark. Like he accepts that his friend is now completely gone. Do I? But that's why he leaves, though, is because he was never gonna kill Vader. That's the. That's his like best but, friend his apprentice he he went there i think to to basically repeat the fight that they had in revenge of the sith and the hope that he could just like get through to him and be like motherfucker like yeah. come back and but when and when vader says i killed anakin he's like well anakin's gone and we're never getting him back and yeah. that's why he leaves like there was he was never i i thought it was clear to me that he was never going to kill vader because like that's not Obi-Wan would never do that. Like, he loves that guy too no, he's much. Like, he man. loves that man. Yeah, he loves that man. And he's a Jedi. Like, you don't you don't kill the, the stuff that you love if you're a Jedi. And I feel like we can't we can't ignore the ghost the ghostly apparition that finally oh, came God. about. <laughs> Whoa! I mean fine. Okay. Hi, Qui-Gon. Nice to see you. I thought it was so silly. <laughs> I really wish they... If they had just ended it before... I didn't also didn't need to see hear Hello There. That, if they oh, oh yeah. That was Right like, before, oh. it would have been a beautiful ending. That was fun. both of those things. <laughs> no, what they should have done... What they should have done is that he should have gone to... Uh, like, go to say it, and then it cut to the... And then someone thing. shoots him and he's dead. <laughs> we don't I would have liked Qui-Gon to, 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 to turned up earlier and actually had a conversation with him about Anakin that would have been more meaningful than him just turning up saying oh let me lead you to your new digs (laughs) yeah like let's tease a second season yeah I think it would have been just the Kenobi and Qui-Gon because I feel like Qui-Gon was the one who said that this is the boy he's got he was the one invested he his life he lost his life for the boy and it would have been really and 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 to be honest it would have been like really interesting for Qui-Gon to reflect on that decision and maybe they did it mm. in clone wars maybe but like again that's after the tr- that's before the transition you know so i feel like it would have been really good to make and that's again it's like this tokenistic just like you know what fine have them in there at least it's not like creating a whole thing with quite Jin. but like it would have been a really touching moment where it's forced guys presented itself just so he could like say as a kind of like help me master i need advice what to do yeah. you know be like it's also my fault <laughs> You could share the blame. I should have left them in slavery. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, because I feel like quite like he also has to share a lot of the blame. Because the whole thing for me started when they didn't save his mother. Because that's such bullshit. 
<clears throat> and I feel like if they could, if they, if he had turned up to say that, it'd be like, my bad, we should have saved his mom. Also, like, why don't Jedi's right? have more money? Like, just pay the fee. <laughs> just, yes. you're with fucking Princess Amadala. I think she's got some coin. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, you've got coin. Why don't you just buy the mother as well? Yeah. I mean, also, they George Lucas be anti-slavery because, you know, Jedi's, but this is why the Jedi fucking suck. Jedi, you know what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, fucking. Just like, oh, only what we need and necessary. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. Hypocritical bastard. May the farce be with you. <laughs> many, many notes there for season two of Obi Wan. Should it go ahead? No, I don't want Obi Wan season two. I want Akbar. No. <laughs> I am so bored of all these human series. Give me some alien series. Give me Salacious B. Crumb. Right, but this is what I'm saying. It's like, there is this is what, you know, when Star Wars says, oh, we've got all these, what, 20 million spaces and species, it's like, then why is it only the humans that we see? Like, give us some stories about all the other characters. I'd love that. That'd be really great. And also, Dr. Afra, fuck you all, it's Pride Month, give me Dr. Afra. <laughs> She's coming for sure. Yeah, we'll see. Things you can expect <laughs> from any Star Wars discussion with Hannah Flint, Lego Star Wars, and Dr. Afra. Yeah, and I'm very disappointed that Maya Erskine was in this series and that she was basically wasted. I feel like they must already know. They must already know who they care against Dr. Aphra because she would be perfect. She would have been perfect. Like, Why would they waste her on I that? feel like they only didn't care because they must already have somebody. Maybe. I don't know. But I do feel a bit like she's too openly gay. <laughs> like her character's too gay. Do you know Because oh, there is right. a question like, no, like that someone says, or you know that tweet the other day, it's like, why isn't she? She's the most obvious character to make a live action series about who even like has this whole relationship with Vader which would have been sick and you could have carried that on where it feels like... Because that's another thing, like, Vader series would have been sick. It was, like, all the little journeys, like the Kieran Gillen stuff that he'd written in the comic books. It's so interesting. Like, I find that mm. really, like... And that's him separate from that. It's actually, like, having that... What happens in between, like, A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, that's really interesting material because he's, like... In, like, he's <laughs> he's not in good terms with the Emperor. It's like, you fucked up, man. And it's like, that's really interesting to me, but there we go. Maybe it's too, too Skywalker. Anyway, on that note, that is it for episode 68 of the Play to Bite podcast. Thank you for tuning in and happy viewing via whatever medium is the safest for you. Do subscribe, rate, and leave us a review if you love the podcast because it makes a difference. And tweet us at BetaBlackPod if you have something you'd love us to shout out next week. And you can follow us. I am at Woman on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Hannah Flint on Twitter and at Hannah Ines Flint on Instagram. I'm at Clarice Lou on Twitter and at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. Farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black. <laughs>